Thanks for tuning in to the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suju Organic, where we inspire, educate, and provide advice and insights around those who are in the sports business and entertainment industry. Please follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at Life in the Front Office. And don't forget to follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Lastly, get your 15% off Suja at sujaorganic.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O, and enjoy today's episode. Welcome to today's episode on the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suja Organic. Excited to have my guest in, Brendan Quirk. CEO of USA Cycling, and nonetheless, uh, I'm just excited to talk about cycling, the sport, the various sports that exist within cycling as a whole. Uh, as someone who got into mountain biking uh, during the pandemic, uh, and it's it's quite addicting. Uh, I'm excited to talk to Brendan about his career, his journey in the sport, and then now what uh, the landscape of the sport looks like going forward. So, Brendan, welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Appreciate Absolutely. It. You know, for people like yourself, I mean, you've gotten to spend majority of your career in the cycling industry as a whole in various capacities. Would love for you to talk about your journey, uh, not only on the brand and the manufacturing side, uh, you, you competed a little bit as well. So how did you get to where you are now? And, yeah. and uh, what can the audience know about the cycling world as it relates to its its own kind of micro industry? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, like a lot of people, I started as a bike racer, as a junior. If you remember the name Greg LeMond, uh, first American to ever win the Tour de France back in 1986. I was a, a knuckleheaded 15-year-old in Little Rock, Arkansas, flipping channels on this Saturday afternoon when CBS was showing the Tour de France. And it was just like, I saw that on TV and it was like the heavens opened up. It was like, oh my God, that is what I want to do. So I went out and I bought my first racing bike, started racing as a teenager, raced in college, really fell in love with the sport. And um, from, uh, you know, from there, um, ended up like a lot of folks do to help pay for the sport, got into bike retail. Uh, and from bike retail, uh, started my own bike shop. It was the size of a little shoebox here in, in Little Rock. And one of these crazy stories of entrepreneurship, it was in the, kind of the mid to late 1990s. Um, the guy I owned the shop with and I, we started getting, you know, getting onto the internet a little bit, listserv groups, Usenet forums, talking to people who were kind of bike nerds like we were. Little Rock was a small market, so there weren't a lot of people to nerd out on high-end gear with. Um, and so we found whatever the internet was back then. And um, one thing led to another. And we turned that little bike shop into the largest uh, e-commerce cycling company in North America called Competitive Cyclist. It was a very unlikely story of entrepreneurship, uh, especially at that, uh, in that era to build a, a pretty powerful e-commerce company in Little Rock of all places. You know, it wasn't in the Bay Area or someplace like that. Uh, it was amazing. And it sold the company. Uh, in 2011 to backcountry.com, you know, really formidable outdoor e-commerce business. Went and worked on their executive team for a few years. Um, then from there, started working for a company called Rafa, which is uh, really the preeminent cycling apparel brand in the world. Based out of London, I was the president of their North American business for a few years. We then sold that company um, to, the, uh, to, the, to two grandsons of Sam Walton, Tom and Stuart Walton, who are very, very well known for the work that they are doing in Northwest Arkansas to build that 
into one of the, the world's preeminent destinations for mountain biking. Um, they asked me if I wanted to come work for them to help them with their mountain bike project in Northwest Arkansas. So I worked for the Walton family for about four years. Um, as I was doing that, uh, I was asked to join the, the board of USA Cycling, joined the board, became vice chair, became chairman of the board. And then when I was chair or CEO at the time, uh, decided to leave the company. And um, our board asked if I would want to change roles from chairman to CEO. So I, that's what I did. And here I am. I've been doing it for about a year and a half. You know, everything in my life, uh, you know, the, the, the house that I own, the way I pay for my college or my kids' college education, all of my friends, my best experiences, they all revolve around bike racing and bike riding. So the opportunity to become CEO of USA Cycling to me was my way of giving back, trying to create opportunity for more people to discover how amazing cycling is and how amazing bike racing is. And so that's what we're doing 24-7 here, and, and I'm loving it. Love it. And when you think about where you are now, and if someone said, you know, I want to become a CEO of a USA governing body, or, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm really passionate about this sport, I want to get involved, whatever the case might be, did you ever think you could or would be CEO of USA Cycling? And, and did you even, like, when you were going throughout your career on the, or on, on really the entrepreneurial side, like, did, did you even know that existed? Like, was that an option from a career? I didn't really think about it. It's interesting. You know, I, I spent, um, I started on bike retail in 19, basically 1995, let's say. And I was, my life um, revolved around selling bike stuff starting in 1995, all the way to the point where um, I left Rafa in 2017. So it was 22 years of probably nobody in the world has sold more bike shorts than me. <laughs> and, um, you know, after 22 years of doing that, I was like ready for a change. And one of the reasons I went to go work for um, the Walton family is that the, the um, especially through their philanthropy, they're extremely, extremely generous with their philanthropy for um, cycling causes um, and a lot of other causes as well. It, it allowed me to change gears to thinking about social impact instead of just, you know, gross margin. And uh, it was a great pivot for my career to sort of expand, you know, what am I doing every day when I get up? And uh, I actually quite liked it. Um, you, know, you used to engage with people in a different way, but it's not a commercial relationship, but rather it's a social impact relationship. Fundamentally, national governing bodies, th that is what, the, you know, a, a big part of what we're about is social impact. National governing bodies are nonprofits, right? Don't forget about that. And nonprofits exist to fulfill kind of a socially beneficial mission. And that's what being in the world of NGBs allows you to do. Every NGB sort of faces, whether it's cycling, swimming, you know, bobsled, basketball, it doesn't matter what it is. Every NGB basically has this kind of twofold mission. One mission is the mission that everybody knows, right? It's world championships and Olympic medals. And I, man, I love going to world championships and I, you know, I love the idea of pursuing medals at the Olympic games. So that's, that's kind of the, the elite athletic mission, but then there's this grassroots sports mission and you know, every NGB exists to grow its sport on a grassroots basis. We want to create opportunities for, for kids and adults alike to discover um, cycling and bike racing. We want to see that sport grow. The same with you know, skiing, same with track and field. And that's really where the social impact is so powerful. Sports change lives. They teach kids how to think, how to have discipline. 
um, how to problem solve. And for us to do that through the bike by creating opportunities at that within cycling, I mean, that's a, a really great way to make social impact. And so I would say it's a late discovery for me in my career, but I find it to be really, really meaningful. Yeah, the social impact piece is huge in the sense that if you think about, you know, you explain the two buckets, right? Like the, the ultra uber competitive side, yeah. and then you've got the, okay, how do you get the casual weekend warrior slash person who needs to exercise and finds a different hobby or whatever the case is? I mean, cycling is one of those things you can do anywhere, right? All you need is a road. Now, whether you have hills and, you know, yeah. mountains and all that sort of stuff is is dependent on geography. But when you think about running, right, like there's there's the ultra competitive marathoners yeah. and and, you know, stuff like that. And then people do people run as a, you know, a, a race, a 5K, a, a yeah. social cause, right? Yeah. Biking is similar where, hey, the 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 entry to doing it yes you need to purchase a bike and it's more than a pair of shoes on the on the running front <laughs> unfortunately that's the case yeah that's 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 one obstacle right but once you have the bike then you can participate there's you know instead of a fun run right fun rides like what whatever they might be how do you help bring light to what biking and cycling can be from a social impact, social cause standpoint and doing plenty of rides. I mean, when I grew up, there was, there was a ride, um, a children's ride that we, my family would do every single year. Right. And it was fundraising with an, a local nonprofit, but how do you go about that grassroots cause to make yep. sure that the social impact is at the front of the, of yeah. the thoughts? Great question. I mean, so what's really difficult when you, when you think about the position an NGB is in, national governing body, if you think about the world that we're in, you know, we are a, um, you know, we are a, um, uh, you know, most of us are in Colorado Springs, like 30 or 40 of our, you know, NGBs are in Colorado Springs. You're, um, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about your elite athletes, about your elite athlete talent development pathway. Um, and so the part of, of, you know, your kind of your headspace, your, your bandwidth, your financial resources that you have to grow the sport on a grassroots level, the question becomes, how, how are you effective in doing that in a country that is so massive where, and for us, there are, you know, five different disciplines that are practiced in the Olympics. And that tends to be, those tend to be the sports that kids are most interested in because kids are fascinated with the Olympic dream. You know, how, how, how do you, how do you make an impact? How are you effective? And it's all about getting local. And so the, the, what you're talking about, those experiences where people discover their first fun run, first fun ride, they're getting into the structured activity for the first time. You know, where, where those experiences, where those opportunities come about is because of local event organizers and local clubs that create opportunity for people to have that first moment of discovery and to begin to learn, okay, what does it mean to sort of ladder up and pursue a goal within the sport? That goal could be, I want to run a 5k and, you know, do, do it for, for running, right? I want to run a 5k. I want to run the whole thing. I don't want to walk in any of it. If I do that, that's going to be a massive achievement for me. With cycling, it could be the same thing. I want to do my first 20 mile bike ride. I don't want to stop. I want to be able to ride the whole thing without resting. How do I go about doing that? Well, you need to, oftentimes you need to have structured events that become the goal that people are you know, circling it in red on their calendar. That's the event I want to do. But then how do they get mentored? How do they learn? It's all about those clubs and teams and organizations on a local level. 
And so the hardest thing and the most important thing for NGBs to do is to build structure so that they can provide direct support to clubs and event organizers throughout an entire nation. And that is a lot more difficult than it looks and, and seems because the U.S. is huge. NGBs are massively um, resource constrained. You know, little known fact about the American Olympic movement and the business of Olympic athletics is that we get zero in taxpayer dollars, right? And um, you look at our most formidable competitors in uh, Olympic sport for cycling, it's Team GB, it's, you know, it's the Netherlands, it's Belgium. The, major the massive majority of funding for those national governing bodies in those nations comes from taxpayer dollars, comes from lotteries, uh, it comes from public funding. We don't get any of that in the US. And um, you know, so to give you a good example of what the impact of that is when COVID happened, in USA Cycling, we, you know, our revenue model more or less is driven off of events happening. So if there are no events, there's no revenue. So COVID happens, obviously there are no events. Um, we basically fired or furloughed 75% of our staff at USA Cycling. For us, we just didn't want to go out of business. And so the, the, the most transformational way we could save the finances of the company was to really be severe with how we managed people. Well, Team GB, um, they, they're government funded. They did not lay off, fire, get rid of a single person because of COVID. They were still fully staffed. So lo and behold, the Tokyo Olympics comes about and who just smashed it? Well, of course, Team GB did because they never paused in any of their work ramping up towards the Olympics. Whereas for USA Cycling, we basically went to the Tokyo Olympics with our athletes and a unbelievably you know, lean crew of coaches, support staff, medical staff, all of that. And that really, you know, kind of carried through into what kind of performance we were able to have, which was which was underwhelming compared to what our goals were. So, the, you know, the lack of government funding, it has an impact um, with elite athletics, but it also has an impact with um, um, how big of a reach that we can have and having a, uh, you know, it's supporting grassroots clubs, teams and event organizers. And so like any nonprofit. It's just constantly fundraising and we're fundraising so we can deliver the level of programming that we want to deliver on a grassroots basis while also supporting our athletes and our programs for, for our elite athletics. Two things there. One, the fundraising methods, you've got membership dues fees, you've got event fees. Like what, what are the yep. kind of couple ways in which you're able to generate revenue yep. outside of what people would typically think with sponsorships and and. Yep. That. Yeah, so we, we think of ourselves, you know, we, we always talk about this duality between grassroots sport and elite sport. We generally look at our business as two businesses in one, and it's two separate revenue streams that don't, um, you know, that don't intermingle. So mostly with, um, so on the elite side, uh, the greatest source of revenue we have is our foundation. We have a very, uh, really generous donor base of mostly high net worth people who are passionate about cycling and passionate about providing opportunities for, um, for athletes to pursue their dreams. And that is the majority of our funding for our, our elite athletic programs. We also get a very substantial high performance grant from the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee. They spend, you know, they are a, they are a fundraising machine. They're excellent at what they do. And a, a significant amount of the money that they raise Go, goes towards high performance grants for all NGBs. The USOPC is our single most valuable partner 
and we're really grateful for them. They provide us high performance grant funding, um, technology, you know, high, technology grant funding, international relations grant funding. They provide us grants in many forms that um, they're very generous, super strategic, and we would be doomed without them. So we're really grateful for the USOPC. And then sponsorship is the third bucket of funding. So again, it's the foundation, USOPC and sponsorship funds our elite athletic programs. Then on our grassroots side of our business, it's mostly um, it's mostly membership. You know, if you want to race in USA Cycling sanctioned races, you you get a license. Those license fees are what drive the the um, um, the programs. What I will tell you is that most NGBs, there are a couple of NGBs that are incredible businesses, right? It's USA Track and Field, USA Basketball, uh, USA Swimming, USA Gymnastics. These are powerhouse organizations um, with really um, dialed, excellent fundraising uh, mechanisms. You know, what, they really are great at driving revenue. There are these four or five powerhouse NGBs, then there are the rest of us. <laughs> and um, for the rest of us, we all face the same challenges, which is uh, our membership model is not sufficient for us to deliver programming at the level that we want. And there is at best break-even spending, oftentimes deficit spending, uh, for a few reasons. Number one, a lot of these activities are in decline from a participation standpoint. Uh, cycling is, there was a bump during COVID, but really there was a 10-year rise during the Lance Armstrong era where cycling just exploded. Um, and you keep in mind, you know, Lance Armstrong was akin to, to Tiger Woods, right? I mean, he is one of the five most, for, from a participation standpoint, one of the five most impactful athletes of the last 30 years, USA Cycling definitely rode that wave up until his fateful day on the Oprah show in 2012. And we have been in a steady decline since 2012. That's our reason why we're in decline, but many other sports are also in decline. People are spending less time outside. They're spending less time working out. Um, it's all, all, almost all sports suffer from this. And because of that, the grassroots side of our business it's suffering. It's the lack of participation. It's an escalation in liability insurance cost um, for all NGBs. That's a really difficult uh, cost. And then NGBs, one form of generating revenue is also putting on events, typically big events. For us, it's national championship events. For like, you know, USA Rowing, it would be a series of nationally significant regattas that they put on, for example. Every NGB has the equivalent kind of you know, let's call a crown jewel type of events that they put on, the cost of putting on those events is also, you know, really escalating. So as our cost base goes up um, and as participation, you know, goes in decline, as our insurance costs go up, the business of grassroots events is becoming increasingly difficult. So uh, for us, as you know, talk about the business of sports, we are going through a, a really big deep dive now where we have a business innovation working group within our organization where we're asking ourselves, okay, what historically, what has our grassroots business model been? How has it worked? Why is it not working now? And what are ways for us to pivot to make it so we can get economic sustainability? But that's kind of the, 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 the fact of NGB world that is not talked about broadly is the increasingly challenged economics of trying to drive grassroots programming across all of these, you know, niche Olympic sports. That's fascinating. And, and appreciate you sharing kind of the, the insights around those two different buckets and how they don't cross over. Right. Because I think a lot of people think that they're all one in the same 
And what's interesting when you mentioned kind of the Lance Armstrong effect or the Tiger Woods effect, right? You know, you even think about pickleball and the pandemic effect, right? Like there's just, there are these turning points for different sports, whether it be U.S. women's soccer in 1999 with the World Cup, right? Like those types of moments for the sport itself that just, you don't have to do anything. Grassroots is going to grow, right? Like it's already become but you can't sit around and wait for that moment to happen again yeah. at some point. Cause it may never happen. Right. And you're it's just- totally unpredictable. Yeah. You could take very little credit for it happening <laughs> and there's not much you can do to stop it from, you know, to stop the trend from kind of coming undone. Yeah. It's in many respects, you're a little bit of a passenger to a larger social thing that's going on. I agree with you completely. And for a sport like cycling, right. You're not necessarily, you know, anyone growing up watching sports, you're not going, Hey, how do I, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning, your journey started with watching the tour de France, but if you don't watch the tour de France or you don't know where to watch the tour de France or, or that's not part of your community that you're in or the part of the country that you're in, like, how does someone find out about cycling? There isn't the college scholarship that everybody's chasing, right? Like there's a different mode to, Hey, how do I get involved in the sport? And to your point about the elite bucket, like, do people even know and or think, you know, when you were uh, starting out competing, like, did you even know that cycling could be an elite competitive thing until yeah. you really started to get into it? Yeah, well, the, there is a, an absolutely amazing organization called NICA, which is a national interscholastic cycling association that um, is has been a catalyst to growing youth bike racing. It's the easiest way to describe it. It's not exactly what it is, but but the, the, the high level version is it's high school mountain biking. And what they have done to create um, from the ground up um, high school mountain bike leagues uh, that embrace riders of all abilities. So these are kids who are out there, you know, basically riding a bike for the first time, all the way to kids who are future Olympians, all racing together in this really welcoming, low intimidation environment. You know, every race feels like a festival. Parents are brought on as coaches. It's a great family environment. It is the peak of what youth sports can and should be is what NICA is doing for youth mountain biking. Uh, their goal is to have, I mean, you look at you know, certain states like state of Utah, it is you know, maybe the greatest youth participation sport in the entire state, more than football, more than baseball, certainly more than a small team sport like basketball. It's just it's unbelievable what they've done in states like Utah, uh, Colorado, California. But NICA is in like 41 or 42 states now. So you can look at states like where I am in Arkansas or Alabama or these you know, states that you think of as being small, no population density, relatively poor um, they even have these, um, you know, absolute smashing success with youth mountain biking. And um, that, thank God for NICA, because that has been the entry point of discovery for mountain biking for, for tens of thousands of kids. Those kids will go on and do one of two things. They'll either always look at the bike as something that gives them joy. They have no interest in competing, but it's something they're going to do for for mental health and to blow off steam and just to stay reasonably fit. So lots of people are doing it for that reason. But then it's a pathway for um, elite athletes. And it's not just mountain biking, but so many kids discover the sport through mountain biking. And then they go and start road racing, start racing on the track, start, uh, you know, continue to pursue 
a mountain bike career, but it's such an amazing entry point. So Nika is has been a huge game changer in the United States. And uh, what we are doing on the back of Nika is as, as USA Cycling strategically is we are very focused on putting energy into collegiate cycling. Collegiate cycling is not an NCAA sport. It is performed on a varsity level by a handful of schools, but nowhere at the scale that we would like um, to really to to um, to give all the kids who are graduating from high school and NICA programs to give them a nationwide opportunity to race in college. That is what we want, and what there is an abundant amount of data, and I'm sure your other guests have, have touched on this, but there is an abundant amount of data out there that shows that when you begin to get substantial growth in a new collegiate sport particularly when there's when there are scholarship dollars on the line on a varsity level you immediately see an explosion in participation in the youth sport and so we, we when we think about what is our youth strategy at usa cycling uh, really for us it's two things how do we provide more support for nica because they're amazing at what they do and then how quickly can we grow collegiate cycling because with collegiate cycling you'll all of a sudden see junior high and high school kids grow but you know you look at what happened you know women's college soccer you look at how that propelled um you know youth girl soccer it's just the evidence there is clear there's so many other examples of that and uh, that's definitely a, a playbook that we are uh, uh, looking to activate at usa cycling and last question as we start to wrap up and we'll get to a quick rapid fire um when you think about you know let's just use golf as an example right like it's not a cheap sport yep. to start to play um cycling i would think is probably in that realm as well could you go buy a three four hundred dollar bike sure but like the true performance bikes what you need to compete on you know whether it's road or mountain bike like that's a couple thousand dollars easy yep. and to then maintain it and all of that sort of stuff like how do you create uh, and, and having come from yeah. the manufacturing side and the, and the commerce side, like how do you create those efficiencies in that world so that you can create opportunity for others by not, you know, the barrier of entry being yeah. an obstacle? The barrier to entry is a huge obstacle. I agree, right? It's it's the equipment. Also with cycling, there's a lot of traveling involved to, if you want to, you know, put on, do a real racing campaign. This is where the, the, the magical work here is being done by local clubs. You have clubs with adults, you know, most adults have multiple bikes. If there's a kid who want to um, who wants to get involved, what you often see is clubs find a way to get these kids bikes to get them equipment so that they can race. Um, it is this is where the, these local organizations are truly transformational, and you know this is why we are so motivated to support clubs. But really, that's where the, the barriers are brought down is on that club level. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that's again as as you think about trying to have grassroots in different areas of the country that maybe you just wouldn't think about cycling, right? Like how do you remove that barrier of entry? Um, Critical. This, yep. this has been fascinating. There's, there's a lot more we can unpack, but uh, a quick rapid fire for you to wrap up the episode. What's the most amount of miles you've rode at one point in time? Longest ride I ever did. I once did a ride from Manchester to London in the UK in one day, it was 230 miles in one day. So we left like a 5.30 in the morning, rolled into London. We literally, we finished at the, the Pringle, the velodrome from the London Olympics, um, like nine o'clock at night. But it was, a, it was a long day on the bike. 230 miles. Wow. Um, 
in terms of riding in different places, you, obviously you just mentioned Europe. Is there a place that you haven't rode a bike that you've, you've wanted to? Yeah, Japan. I was supposed to do a big tour in Japan, scheduled, paid for uh, when COVID happened. The summer of 2020 is when I was slated to do it. And that's still the place for me that uh, more than anywhere else I would love to go ride. What's the one state in, in the U.S. that, it, you know, you mentioned even Arkansas and trying it to, to continue to grow. Like, what's the one state that you're like, oh, wow, I did not realize that there would be, you know, this big of a group of cycling or, or you know, mountain biking trails or whatever the case might be? Yeah, I think two things, right? Because bikes, we have multiple different types of bikes. So I mean, a couple of different answers. For mountain biking, I mean, the, the sleeping giant is Arkansas. Northwest Arkansas, particularly centered around Bentonville, has really become the epicenter of American mountain biking. There's 500 miles of single track trail all throughout the Northwest Arkansas corridor between Bentonville all the way down to Fayetteville where the University of Arkansas is. It is um, absolutely the one of the most incredible places on the planet to, to ride a mountain bike. You wouldn't expect it if you didn't know about it, but it's incredible. Then on the road bike side, um, I'm a huge fan of the Texas Hill Country, kind of west of Austin. It's some of the best road riding in America. You know, when you when you think about road bikes, you care about a couple of things: the density of the roads and the lack of traffic. Those are the two things that you're going for. And if it's beautiful terrain, that's also nice. Texas Hill Country, northwest west northwest of Austin, is some of the most incredible riding that you can get. I mean, there's so many super pockets of riding in the U.S. Uh, but just for me, based on my personal journey, where I spend my time, Texas Hill Country is a real favorite for me. And it's got a great riding community down there as well. If you could create a fun ride, yeah, what would it be? Oh, man. What would it be? Um, you know, I live in Little Rock. I've, one thing I want to do that I've never been able to do is ride my bike from Little Rock to Memphis, like go to a Grizzlies game or something like that when I get there. It's about by car, it's about 130 miles. I wouldn't mind doing that. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of people love to do these West Coast rides. You know, it's San Francisco to LA or, you know, some version of that. That's definitely something on my bucket list as well. But God, yeah, there are a lot of, there's a lot of riding left for me to do. There's a lot of stuff I haven't done yet that I want to do. Uh, last one for you, an e-bike. Yeah. Are you, are you going to ride that cross country one day? Is that, I mean, you that's... Know, I, I want to ride across country, but where e-bikes are amazing is car replacement. It's going to the grocery store, going out to dinner, you know, riding errands, you know, riding around someplace for errands. These bikes now have gotten so light. The it's like cars, right? The batteries are getting lighter. They are, um, you know, you can go longer between charges. The amount of cargo you can carry on these things now is amazing. And especially if you live in a place with high population density, if you're going on a trip that's two or three miles, it's faster on a cargo bike. Those, that's where the e-bike to replace my road bike or my mountain bike, not so sure if I'm interested in that, but to replace my car for short trips, it is the greatest thing in the world. And I, um, there are some amazing bike brands, Yuba and Turn and a couple of others that if people are tempted to take a look at that, it is, um, it's, it, it's a life-changing thing you can do. Highly recommend it. Yeah, no, the, the e-bike industry is definitely taken off. There's, there's something it's there. So. Exploding. It's exploding. It's where all the growth in the bike industry is right now. You're absolutely right. Certainly. Well, Brendan, really appreciate all the perspectives, the insights. Um, fascinating to learn about the sport of cycling. Excited to see where it continues to grow uh, and go. And uh, nonetheless, welcome back on anytime. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You take care. I'll see you, Jake.
Thanks for tuning into today's episode on the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suja Organic. Remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe and follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at Life in the Front Office. And don't forget to get your 15% off Suja at sujaorganic.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. And stay tuned for next Monday's episode with a new guest and new content.